You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Hey, good evening. I, this, is, this is fun for us. This is great. Allison very modestly left out the part that this is a bit of a trial run for us. We, we don't tend to have either live podcasts, and certainly not in the retail store, but the great thing about our new museum is we have the space to do this. This is something we can do after hours uh, that we're going to try to do more often as we move forward. It's kind of a cool way to meet interesting people and, and, and talk to them about their books. This is going to be book-centered since it is in the retail store where if you haven't had a chance, uh, you know, we've not only taken the great book selection we had at the old museum, but we've expanded it. This is the extra space. And I think that we are, if not the, but certainly one of the places to go if you want to find a book on intelligence of any aspect. And certainly that's true for our guests tonight. We're joined by Richard Kerr who's the former deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's also the former, a former acting director. Um, he's, he stepped in when one of our founding board members, William Webster, uh, moved on. Uh, and he's also the former deputy director for intelligence at CIA, where he led the CIA component responsible for all analysis in production of finished intelligence for the United States. Early in his career, he was the head of the office that wrote the presidential daily brief and briefed President-elect Ronald Reagan daily between his election and when he was sworn in as president. He also headed a small team later in his career that assessed intelligence production before the Iraq War at the request of both the Secretary of Defense and Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And he is now the author of the book, The Dark Side of Paradise, Odd and Intriguing Stories from Vero Beach. Welcome, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, it's, uh, it's great fun. Well, I, 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 I'm from Miami originally, as anyone who listens to SpyCast knows, and, and I've never heard Paradise and Vero Beach in the same sentence before. <laughs> um, oh, no. No, I know. It's, it's a wonderful community. It's a wonderful town. Yes. It, it, and and uh, um, far enough away from the airport and far enough away from Miami and far <laughs> enough away from, from the big cities of from Florida, Orlando and from other places. Orlando yeah. to be a place people like to live. 
and don't want anybody to come. Right. Well, that's the thing. Maybe maybe all the bad rep that that, that area of the country gets is per, you know on purpose that's so right. that nobody comes and buy. Um, so I, I don't want to age you, uh, but you came into CIA at a really interesting time in 1960. Right. This is a time okay. in which. The, the old guard of the OSS was still around. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of them hadn't left yet. I mean, Alan Dulles was the director, and the Cold War is at its height. You and talk, Eisenhower was the president. Right, Eisenhower was the president. So, I mean, the World War II generation, which you were a kid, not, not going to age you that much, you were a kid during the war, but you're surrounded by these people who work with OSS, who are, who are big people in World War II, and then, of course, the height of the Cold War, 1960, is about as, as hot as the Cold War is going to get. I'm going to talk a little bit about coming into CIA and how that was from a graduate student right beforehand to joining an agency at its, at its heyday? Well, it was probably far less imposing and interesting than you would believe. Because I, I came in, I wasn't terribly well educated and wasn't very sophisticated. Uh, I had kind of reversed my life by uh, getting married when I was just 20 days after I was 18, and going into the Army, and then going to college, kind of doing everything as hard, as difficult as you could right. make it, and recruited out of the University of Oregon after a year of graduate school there. And I didn't know what, I mean, I knew that I wanted to do something interesting, but I was primarily thinking about teaching. But uh, a CIA recruiter came to the University of Oregon and made this pitch and that was when you could still have a recruiter come to the University of Oregon. Right. I'll tell you a story about that <laughs> later, because after a little while, you weren't, uh, they didn't allow recruiters. Um, but I got a good, I, got, I was impressed by what he said. Had no idea what CIA was about. I mean, it could have been the FBI or NSA or DIA, although DIA didn't exist then. But it could have been any number of things. And I didn't know. I just. They hired me, $5,300 a year. That was more money that I thought I was king. <laughs> the previous year, I'd made $1,500. And it was a graduate student in teaching. teaching. So Everything seems like 50, kingly ransom when you're a grad student right before. Yeah, right? $5,300 <laughs> seemed. I thought, my god, I'm on easy street from here on. You know, Of course, I didn't realize I was moving to Washington. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so I came to Washington, and um, I w got probably the worst job in CIA. It was called, it was in the Industrial Register. And it was essentially a file clerk. I was hired at the lowest grade of a professional in, in you could be, a GS-7. And uh, it, was, it was just a file clerk. And I worked on East German industry, which was really boring, I'll tell you. But there wasn't a lot of industry in East Germany in 1960s. Well, what they were doing is talking to defectors coming back from Russia about Russian industry. Uh, so, but it was, it was a job that was not very exciting. And, and uh, I said I'd give myself one year, and then I was getting the hell out of there. And in that interim period of time, uh, they built the building at Langley, a new building. Before that, you had no idea what CIA was like, because I was in an old skating rink in Washington near the Heurich Brewery. I didn't know what the agency looked like. I didn't know what other components of it looked like. I didn't know what other components. They wouldn't tell you anything, and they wouldn't give you job notices from in this particular organization because I knew everybody was trying to get out of it. Right. So it was a, a difficult organization to, 
to work in. But, you know, it was one of those that was a kind of a grassroots working place. You kind of learned a little bit about the trade. We moved to Langley in the new building, and I said, all right, I'm going to walk down the halls until and, and I see something that looks interesting, and I'll go in, and that's what I did. I went in, talked to the secretary, and said, I would like to see the boss of the, this particular office. And, and she was kind of saying, like, like why, you know? Uh, and I said, because I want a job from him. And she reluctantly let me in to see him. And uh, he asked me what I could do, and I said, what do you need done, you know? So, uh, that's what I can do. And that person, Bruce Clark, Jr., became a mentor for 20 years or so off and on as someone who looked out after me and pushed me into things that I was not capable of doing. And so, you know, that was, that was the key. I've talked to people today about this, a couple of people came up to me and said, well, how do you get ahead? I said, you know, I don't have any idea. I mean, I can give you advice about how to get ahead in an organization, and that is you have to be willing to do what people want you to do, and you have to be, you have to be good at doing whatever it is they want you to do, or as good as you, and you have to learn, and you learn about things you don't know anything about, and you have to stretch yourself, and uh, you have to, uh, and one of the things I think is key, you have to have a sense of humor. I, I firmly believe that. If you don't have a sense of humor, you're doomed. But, this, is a, uh, this is a time period where you join in 1960. 1961 is Bay of Pigs. 1962 is the Cuban Missile Crisis. By 64 and 65, we're starting to get involved in Vietnam. And this is, this is the time that CIA is really transforming itself it is, into no the organization that we know today. Well, I was lucky. Again, a lot of a lot of life is luck. Yeah. You know, are you in the right place at the right time? Well, I was working for Bruce Clark in in the, I was following uh, at that point in time Thailand, and and those days we wrote national intelligence surveys, which were large studies of the country, kind of very basic, how a government's organized, how it's functioned, and that's what I was doing. And and they decided they would abolish that office. And I was abolished. And uh, my boss uh, was put as the head of the, the uh, military division in the Office of Current Intelligence. And that's when the Cuban Missile Crisis broke out. And that gave me a tremendous opportunity because I was put, first of all, in the operations center, which was kind of the center of all stuff. And then I was given the job as a military analyst following Soviet forces in Cuba. I mean, you just can't have a better job right. than that as a young analyst. You write every day. You write all the time. You brief people at, at every level. I mean, it was very exciting. It was fun. It was, you know, it was a crisis. But that's the kind of thing you, I, I found I really liked. I liked crises. I liked to organize them and manage them. And I liked to be, in, liked to be involved in them. Well, that's the kind of person you want at CIA, right? That's not the kind of person. You don't want somebody that's like, oh, my God, it's a crisis. No, no. <laughs> well, my view always was is in chaos, there's opportunity. Uh, when things are really confused and not well organized and, and thing, people are running around like heads with their chickens cut off, uh, that's when you need to kind of do something and, and, and be, be a, a kind of firm hand on it and right. do the work that needs to be done. So. I had wonderful experience in, in the Cuban, and, and uh, 
I was very lucky. Again, my, my boss, uh, when I, I moved in, followed Soviet Russian military after, uh, in, in Cuba, then I moved to follow the Soviet military in Russia. And at that time, the Soviet military was growing right. leaps and bounds with missiles and submarines and, and bombers. And so I was following Soviet missiles. <clears throat> and the president and John McCone, the director, decided they wanted to start briefing some key foreign people, foreign leaders on the Soviet threat. And so my boss gave me the job of briefing the Shah of Iran and the president of Pakistan. I was sent off by myself to, to, to go and brief them. And uh, it's not quite true in the case of Iran. I had Jim Critchfield, who, who knew the Shah, actually walk in with me. But, but I was the briefer, only briefer in, the only, in, the, in, on, in Pakistan, the only person who was briefing the, the, the president. So I got opportunities to do things that were kind of scary. I mean, yeah. I was... I, I was not overwhelmed, but it wasn't the kind of thing I would have said, well, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I said, this is going to be really, this is going to be frightening as hell. Well, I, <laughs> you talk about chaos, and you sort of, the 1970s at CIA and in the United States holistically was a time of chaos. And, and you worked your way into middle management at CIA, and you survived that chaos of the 1970s with the Schlesinger just, just directorship. Just barely. <laughs> well, Jim Schlesinger fired a lot of people, as you know, when he was director, uh, kind of because Nixon said do that. They, they wanted to, Nixon never was a fan of CIA. Uh, it's surprising how many presidents were not fans of CIA, even though we served the president. Uh, but Nixon was not a particular fan. I saw Jim Schlesinger one time in the, he was only there for I think 18 months or maybe less. Yeah, long enough to cause some real damage. Cause a lot, yeah. yeah. But he, I saw him only one time in the barbership, and I tried not to make eye contact because <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't want him to think that I was getting I was getting a haircut on government time. Uh, but uh, he, it's amusing because he became a very close and friend of mine after afterwards, uh, and uh, someone I really was fond of. And we did a lot together, and he actually asked me to speak at his, when he died, I was one of the four people he had give a talk at his, at his funeral. So, so I, I'd gotten to know him very well, and, uh, and I really enjoyed him. But at CIA, he was not someone that was liked by CIA, or he didn't particularly like CIA. Actually, that's not fair. He thought CIA could be good, a good organization. He just didn't think it was right. a good organization. <laughs> Let me ask you about briefing Ronald Reagan because there, I guess no matter what political spectrum you're on, you have to acknowledge the fact that there's a transition that took place when Reagan came into presidency. Could CIA see that transition coming, not just here in the United States politically, but also a couple years later, soon thereafter, in the Soviet Union? Because obviously in the 70s, if you, if you study the Soviet Union, you know their economy and it was under stagflation. It wasn't doing anything. They were outspending themselves. And there, something had to be done. I, it's the old joke about the Kremlin was, I think Reagan even made this joke, was that it, it, he talked to somebody, but they kept dying on him. <laughs> and, and the Kremlin doubled as an old folks' home in a funeral parlor. Yeah. And, of course, until you got to Gorbachev, there was this kind of chaos going there. Yeah, it George just, Bush went to four funerals yeah. as vice president of heads of Soviet, the Soviet Union. So. 
Was that a turning point at CIA? Did you see that as a transitional period where you could take <laughs> advantage of that chaos happening inside the Soviet side? <laughs> I'm not sure I could say I had insight into that. But I took off the opportunity uh, that, that existed. Um, I was lucky, again, my old friend Bruce Clark, who by that time had left and gone to Europe and then come back and was the, the director of intelligence. Um, he, he made me the head of the group that did the President's Daily Brief. And so that put me in the position on a, of, of being the person who provided the President with information daily. And when President uh, Reagan was elected, President Bush persuaded him, and I'm not sure, I think he also was not hard to persuade in this regard, that a CIA officer should come and every morning brief the president personally, not through a, a national security advisor, but personally. And I, I went, I was selected to go out and begin the briefing of President Reagan on a daily basis for that two-month period or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was very exciting. Again, people were conf very confused because the people around Reagan were not sympathetic to CIA. Uh, they were people who fundamentally didn't like CIA, uh, including the National Security Advisor, was not a real fan, although we kind of won him over because we were pretty good. Was that Haig at the beginning? Or no, it was... He went through a lot of them. That's what I'm trying to remember. Well, the first one was the one who ended up with the watch. The watch. Let's see. What was his name? I know him very well. I can't remember. We can name. look it up afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, there were a lot of people in defense and elsewhere who were to the, considerably to the right, felt CIA was far too liberal, filled with communists or, or liberals. <laughs> and uh, so we, when the... When Reagan came in, the agency was really quite concerned that we were going to be able, to, if we, about establishing a relationship with the new president. And after all, the president is your customer. Right. If he doesn't like you and doesn't read your material, nor does his cabinet, you're doomed. Well, fortunately, you have a vice president who used to be the director of CIA. Ah, that helps a little bit, that, right? that helped a great <laughs> deal. But, but, you know, there were a lot of people around Reagan yeah. who were not fans. E. Clay and defense and, and the, a lot of people in defense department particularly, but elsewhere. And so it, it was a real time to try to establish ourselves with the president and with the cabinet. And we did that. We did a very good job, I think, of convincing them that we were valuable. And, you know, I, that's kind of what I told people who've been through this drama with Trump on the on the, you know, he doesn't pay any attention to intelligence. I've talked to the intelligence people about that and said, you know, you've got to prove that you're useful. Mm -hmm. you, just, you just don't automatically become useful because you say you're CIA. You have to prove that you can do something and you're competent and you're valuable and you needed to be listened to. And if you can't do that, you're doomed. Right. <laughs> we, we talked, George Bush is somebody that obviously had a lot of respect for the agency. During his presidency is kind of one of the turning points in obviously Cold War history because it ends. CIA got a lot of grief for not anticipating the end of the Cold War. Some even called it an intelligence failure. I've read interviews with you where you take a lot of I take exception, exception to, to that. that argument. 
Now, did we know exactly when it was go going to fall? Do we know what it meant to fall? Do we have, I mean, is there a, can you give me the date it fell? Yeah. You know, the problem was it usually centers around the, the wall. Right. And, and uh, if you look at CIA reporting, we presented a very comprehensive view of the Soviet Union, its economic problems, and the fact that it could not continue to build the military and do the, and support the military that it had and also have a viable economy. It couldn't do that. It couldn't last. And it was going to have, there would have to be give, major give in it. But we didn't know what the date was. Right. Or we didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. But you look at the, the books that were presented to Congress, for instance, the Green Book that was given to, it's something that you might, I don't know if you've ever looked at, a yearly presentation to the congressional committees on the Soviet economy. Mm -hmm. Very impressive statements in there about how bad off the Russians were, how difficult time they were having. So, you know, it's, uh, failures are, you know, are... It's so easy in 2020 hindsight to look yeah, back and say, really how did you miss all these warning signs? It yeah. is, and, and the, no one said it was gonna happen at a particular time. People were surprised by the, the uh, Berlin Wall, but there's an interesting story. In yeah. fact, it's in this yeah, book. Right. Uh, one of the things that's quite interesting is the guy who was the kind of PR guy for the, the German uh, Republic, the, the communist side of it, he made an announcement to over the, because he controlled the press, the releases of press, he made an announcement that was not authorized that said the wall was going to be taken down. And of course, people just moved through the wall and began crossing it. That They had not yet decided to do it. Right. And and uh, he he was he was subsequently he, he was really got a hard time afterwards for doing that. That he made a terrible mistake. That he he preempted the decision. Right. So how could CIA predict the walls coming down when the East German government didn't even really want the wall to come down? My in view the first always place. was, and I heard this joke from somebody that said, you know, you could break into the to the the safe of the senior person in the Soviet Union. And you'd open the safe, and you'd look, you'd see a piece of paper in there. And it would say, port is left, starboard is right. It's not going to say, here's the secret to all of the, all of the Soviet problems. It's not, there are no single answers right. to intelligence. It is a complexity of things, and a lot of different things go into it, little teeny pieces that make up a map and a story. But, uh, you know, the idea that somehow, and, and that there is a key secret. Right. And all you need to do is find that secret and your problems are solved. Unfortunately, my experience in 35 years is that's not the way it works. There are a lot of little secrets. A lot of times the people that are involved on the other side don't know what they're going to do or what they want to do or how they're going to do it. So they're as confused as you are about the future. And, and sometimes you only can see the future by experiencing it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, how many times have I made a decision and someone asked me why? I'm like, seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, I mean, that, that's certainly true for world leaders as well. I mean, none of them saw it coming. So the CIA is supposed to be able to find it too. I think there's a lot of hindsight bias going on. There are you know, some uh, very present people who, who I think... Uh, 
who had had an inkling of this. Uh, Moynihan, I think you'd have to give him some credit. I'll, uh, Senator uh, Moynihan, although he used to call me regularly and say, uh, you know, you guys are getting have the economy, Soviet economy all wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'd get out the green book. In fact, I had it marked with a, 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 pl a place because I knew he was going to call. <laughs> and I would open, and I would get the book out. When I, the secretary said, Senator Moynihan is on the phone, I'd get the book out and have it open in front of me. And I'd read quotes out of it to him about, you know, how bad or how, what we were doing on the Soviet economy. So, you know, it's a, even he, and I think he was pretty present about a lot of things. But even he didn't get it totally right either. And then he wanted to shut down CIA after the Cold War ended too. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. The problem, yeah. Look at and look at the circumstances. Right. So you retired from CIA in the early 1990s, and and you didn't feel like retiring, I guess, because you had a pretty extraordinary career. I didn't want to retire. CIA. I was forced to retire. <laughs> well, to be, to be honest about it, I well, it's it's like the military. Uh, when Bob Gates became the, the director of Central Intelligence, uh, he and I had kind of similar backgrounds and experiences. Mm -hmm. And people generally, including Bob, I think, believed that he really needed a deputy who was a military. And that meant that I, you know, I needed to right. leave. I didn't want to leave. It wasn't my idea. Uh, but but it, was, it was a good idea. I mean, it was right. Uh, and it was a good thing to do. And, and I went off and had some very interesting experiences. I'm glad I did. First of all, I went out and left the agency broke, um, except for what I had invested in a house. But with four children in college, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any I didn't have any money saved. I, and it's funny because when I you'd think as a deputy director of CIA and acting director that I would have been able to find a way to collect a lot of money. <laughs> But I didn't. And uh, you are a, a ethical and moral <laughs> deputy director and acting director of CIA. Well, and I think most if, you, if your bank account had ten billion dollars, then it, we'd, we'd have a little bit yeah, of an issue to I talk about. Yeah, I think most of them were that way. Although some came with money, mm. as a little different. I didn't come with money, and I didn't leave with money. <laughs> How but, was it, so? You spent some time after you retired, traveling and meeting some of your former adversaries, which I thought was really interesting. Right. People like Marcus Wolf and others. I did. That you had spent decades. Fighting is the wrong word, but decades working against. How, how, I mean, I've talked to other former high-level intelligence people from both sides of the pond and asked that question about how was it to sit across or to have a conversation with someone that you had plotted against? You know, it's interesting because I had more in common with them than I do with most people <laughs> because they knew the language and they knew the business. Yeah. And so you could talk to them and they understood exactly what you were saying. You didn't have to agree, right? But they they knew the they knew what intelligence was all about, and I, I had a very interesting. Uh, I, I was in Dubrovnik, and we were. I was asked to join a a, a, a board of a, a a journal, and we had Marcus Wolf, we had all the former intelligence agency heads, French. Uh, I guess we had Norwegian. We had a variety of them there, and, um, and including a deputy director, a Russian deputy director. And I got talking to him, and I said, why don't we, I, 
we had such a good conversation. I said he was the essentially the DDI right. of the Russians. Of KGB, yeah. And I said, why don't we get together and write a book and you write how how what you did for your bosses and I'll write what I did for my bosses and we can kind of compare notes to say how things work. Well he thought it was a good idea until he thought about it. <laughs> and then he said you can go back to you're, you can go back from Dubrovnik to the United States and do that. I can't yeah. go back to the to Russia and write a story like that. So we were never able to actually get together to do it. But I would have loved to right. have how, how do what intelligence did they pay attention to? What did they like? What did they pay attention to most? Did they like technical or kind of human intelligence? What kind of information did they how did they like right. it presented? I thought it would be fascinating. Yeah, because it was a very different way of looking at the world. I mean, the, the Russians were exceptionally good at human intelligence. We weren't for a long time anywhere near as good. Although, you know, their primary interest often was technical intelligence. Because they wanted information about our, our technology. Which, of course, our, yeah. that was one of our yeah. uh, particular capabilities, too. It was, we were pretty good at technical intelligence. As you said, human intelligence, we sometimes had good intelligence and sometimes we didn't have good access. So let me, let me talk about your book, because that's why we're here. Um, analysts are the writers of, of CIA, right? Operations guys, I, I've read briefings and things operation, not to demean them, but I, I can't imagine them writing a lot of books, although they do sometimes. They're they not do. like this. Analysts are the ones that are the, the academics, they're the thinkers, they're the writers. You had to write all the time, like you talked about. This is very different. This is not like reading and national intelligence estimate. This is, this is a different animal. So how, how did you have to kind of change the way you thought about things to sit down and write this book? I think I inherited from my son, who's a little weird. <laughs> He's an artist. And I, I think I inherited that from him, if, that, if you can believe that you get the inherited other the other way around. Yeah. Well, you've talked about your career being backwards, maybe that yeah. the No, I don't know. I, I, uh, I've always had a somewhat bizarre sense of humor, and I always had a sense of humor. And uh, as I said earlier, I really think that was one of the things that allowed me to move ahead in the agency because while I took things seriously, I, I didn't, I didn't believe, I believed you could do it with good humor and have fun doing mm -hmm. it. And uh, as a result, I, I did have fun. Uh, and pro sometimes probably too much fun. <laughs> and. Uh, but I, uh, I, I don't know where, I wrote a thing at the end of, the, of the, uh, the book that says, why do I write? And um, I don't know why I write. I write because uh, I, I need to write. Yeah. And I write because in part I want to be remembered. I want something to, be, to live beyond me. And I want to amuse people or, or inform people. I like to do both. So it's a, it's a complex question. Now, how do, how do I come up with these stories? Quite honestly, I don't know. <laughs> uh, There's a wonderful line that you have in this where you said you had the time to write short. Well, I love that phrase because that's right. I, I, I wrote a PhD dissertation. I had a lot of colleagues who had 700-page PhD dissertations, and they're their advisors are like, this is ridiculous. Like, you need to actually learn how to write concisely. You need to write to point. 
Did you learn that a little bit, having to write briefings oh, for policymakers? Absolutely. For yeah. I mean, that's if you don't write crisp, short, precise in the agency, you're doomed. Uh, I mean, you'll never make it in the agency. And and if you know, it's kind of the tel the elevator briefing. Right. If you can't say on a on a ten-story building coming down in an elevator, you can't tell somebody that you're with the store the problem that you're dealing with, the information and the solution. Then you're you're doomed. Right. You know, if you can't get through it, then then you're not able to. You know, you can't work in intelligence. Now, not everything is short. Yeah. Some are long and complicated, and a lot of them have. Uh, a level of expertise and detail that's needed. But I always was involved in kind of the current intelligence, right. the brief. And if you wrote more than a couple pages, you were losing your, your, if you wrote much more than a page, you had to have topic sentence, you had to have some things to support it, and you had to have a conclusion. If you didn't do that quickly and sharply, you're doomed. Well, particularly for a, pri a principal like a POTUS where you might have 15 minutes that's right. You know, where you, you, their, their schedules are, are every 15 minutes throughout the entire day. Absolutely. Yeah. You just don't, you can't go in. I, I used to get a kick out of I'd, my technique for doing briefings. Like we had deputies committee meetings. And I don't know whether you know much about the deputy committee, but they were very, very good and very valuable meetings headed by Bob Gates and the deputies from the major national security organizations. And so you would have a meeting to talk about a problem. It'd be like, what are we going to do with this, the, the tanker problem in, in the Middle East right now? What, what are the issues? And, the, and you had the agency person, CIA person, had to go in, and I had 10 minutes to say, what are the facts? What are the people involved? What are their capabilities? And what, what is the best judgment you have about this? So 10 minutes kind of at the most. Right. And uh, if you couldn't do it in 10 minutes, you wouldn't be asked to do it, uh, to, to give the briefing. And, and when I was preparing for those briefings, quite often I'd get a group of 15 or 20 analysts together and we'd go together. We'd argue and talk and think about what the issues were. And then somebody would write some briefing notes for me. And they'd be three pages long and absolutely impossible to use. <laughs> and so what I would do is in the car, I would take a piece of paper and a pencil, and I would write out, uh, you know, a half a dozen words, maybe with a, another sentence behind it, and that's it. Yeah. And that would be my, what I was going to brief from, because by that time I should know it, I should know the facts, I should know what the implication of those oh. are. So, you know, it's it's quite a different yeah. process. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud, Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I want to know about the Sanfi scribblers because yeah, this okay. is such a fascinating 
let me ask a question. Did they understand who you were? Oh, yeah. When you joined, like your background and what that meant. So can tell a little bit about who they were or who they are well, uh, and how you got involved. <clears throat> when I first went to Vero Beach, because I like to talk and I like to have talk about foreign policy, I found some people who wanted to listen to foreign policy problems. And so I gave a couple presentations. Uh, first one was at a church. I gave a, a three separate presentations on the origins of Islam. Because one, I was interested in it and I wanted to do the research. Mm -hmm. And two, I thought it would be a good topic. And so one of the people that attended that briefing was a lady who lives down the street from me on Sandfly Lane, the little dirt road, uh, old development in Vero Beach, primarily of very wealthy people, except for me. Not, I'm not the only person that's not wealthy, but it was originally a place where the wealthy built houses and, and for, 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 the, for the summer, for the winter, for the winter. I always get confused in Florida as to whether it's winter or summer. But they got out of there in the hot season and came down, you know. In any case, uh, she had put together a, a group of people who were all writing either memoirs or books. Some of them had published books. And, uh, and so she asked me to join the group. She thought I would fit in with the group. And so I began every... Every Monday, I went down with a story that I'd written the previous week. I was, I was much more uh, diligent about it than some of my, my other <laughs> uh, writers were. But every, every week, I had something to write. It, it wasn't always these. Sometimes I did foreign policy things, and I wrote for a local newspaper and, and other things because I was interested in writing on foreign policy. So I, but I would read the story aloud. And then they would comment on it and say, well, you know, I don't, we don't really like this one particularly. Sometimes I'd ignore them and sometimes I wouldn't. <laughs> and uh, at some point in time, I reached the point where I had about, I don't know, David? And I haven't introduced either David or Diane here. David is my, uh, my editor, my publisher, my collaborator. And Diane Nine is, is, my, is my agent. And so they're the ones that helped me put this together. And now I was just talking, just talking to David about it. He didn't do much with my individual stories, but what he did is structure them right. and put them in order, in an order, and with introductions to the to various sections. That just made a lot of sense. Mine originally was just a bunch of stories, uh, one right after the other, and he gave some some structure to that and made it. Uh, made it uh, readable. So let me ask you, you, you briefed the President of the United States, you briefed the Shah of Iran and the President of Pakistan, and now you're hanging out with Gertrude and her retiree friends down in Vero Beach. Did you ever feel nervous reading your stories in front of them, the, the, kind of this, this fiction that you had created? You really hadn't been a fiction writer before this. Was there ever a kind of, I wonder what they're going to think and, and hesitation? I have no shame. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I, I didn't. I mean, I, the thing is, I, I tell people today when I was signing these books, I say, I really enjoy them. I read these again and again. I, I, I mean, I really enjoy them. I laugh at them. 
And so I, they're not kind of one-time things. I, I read them again and look at them. And, uh, and uh, so I, I enjoyed them. Even if they didn't, I would enjoy them. <laughs> well, you, you bring some of your, your past expertise into this. And I want to, the, the little paragraph that begins part one, which is about spying, uh, it says this. I'm just going to read it very quickly. What does a jihadist bomber, two snipers, a disastrous dinner, and a gathering of senior intelligence officers in Bulgaria have in common? At first, the connection may not be clear, but together they provide insight into the complex world of international governments. It's an area that is often misunderstood by most civilians, but upon closer inspection, the themes are universal. And that's something we focus on here at the Spy Museum also, is that... Now, that's largely David. What, would you agree with that concept? Or? I mean, David, I think, <laughs> composed that particular... I, I have probably changed it and added to it, but that was his idea to introduce that that way. So the answer is, you know, sometimes you don't know what you're doing with your own stuff, you know, in terms of trying to organize it. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. You know, it's an interesting. I don't. Uh, a lot of my stories, quite honestly, came out of just strange experiences. Like I, you know, you listen. You listen to what is the person that you on the on your on your uh, who's the who's the woman that talks Siri. to you. Yeah. Phone, yeah, I listened to Siri, and I, I thought, you know, that's got to be a story. It's got to be a story. So I wrote a story that Siri takes over the car and, and goes and drives it without the control of the people yeah. in it. It just makes sense to me that that would be a logical story uh, that, and, and then disappears. Right. So, uh, but you, if you look in the newspaper, I mean, the, life is amusing to start off with. And when it isn't, it's tragic. But those things offer enormous opportunities for stories. Oh, I just, I, so I, what, I, I wasn't <laughs> going to even remotely talk about the book over here. But we actually start with almost an identical chapter. The first chapter in this book is Acoustic Kitty, a project that the CIA ran back oh, in the yeah. 1960s where they turned a cat into a covert listening device. <laughs> a real project. You have a wonderful story that leads off this book about a more modern version of Acoustic Kitty. Oh, that's right. Where yeah. uh, I didn't associate those two, but I remember the no, Acoustic I, Kitty. I read it and I just started laughing. I'm like, this is basically, in this case, I don't want to give away the whole story, but this is Bo Obama, the dog, being turned into Acoustic Doggy. Yes. Basically, uh, it is a fantastic story. Um, and, and that's... That, well, why wouldn't you do that? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you about a couple of these, and not, not to give away any of the stories, because there are so many. In the, words, the ending has such a great kind of denouement at the end where you don't want to give it away. But what I loved is things like the assignment, where you, you talk about an interesting concept about how do you retire from a job that has such national security implications, such real-world possibilities, and then do things like serving mashed potatoes to the homeless people or drive your golf cart around Vero yeah. Beach. And you, think, you see it in the military also, where somebody had been in combat for years and then comes back and goes grocery shopping. Yep. You, certainly, a career at CIA, where, you're, again, you're talking to presidents and briefing people and involved in the day-to-day -day decisions that affect all of us, and then you're retired now trying to figure out do you want a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich for lunch, and that's your biggest decision of the day. Did you find in real world that that transition was difficult to do? No. I, I think I always had perspective on it. I knew that sooner or later I was going to be in a position where the people ahead of me didn't open the doors for me. 
and when I walked out the off, when I walked out the building, a door wouldn't, a, a car wouldn't be waiting for me, and a person wouldn't open the door, and they wouldn't be carrying an Uzi. Yeah. You know, I, I knew that that was going to end. I knew that that was, that was a, you know, that was a temporary thing, and I knew that I was important only for the time being, and that uh, every th sooner or later I was going to go back to doing what my wife said, taking the garbage out. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that uh, that's the reality of it. Now, there's a, who is it? The former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral. Mike Mullen, or are you going back further? Going back further. Oh. He, he told a story one time that I really loved because it fit quite well. When he retired, he said he, the next day after he retired, he went out and got in the back seat of his car. <laughs> and there was no driver. Right. <laughs> There's a wonderful story, Dwight Eisenhower, when he retired to Kansas, the first day after being president, um, picked up the phone in his house and he yelled to his aide and said, there's something wrong with the phone. The aide came over and listened to it. It's like, there's nothing wrong with the phone. He's like, it's making a weird noise. He had never picked up the phone before and not had an operator yeah. on the other side. So when he heard the dial tone, he thought the phone was broken. Yeah. And that's that transition of, you know. Of well, I think sort of admirals, ha admirals and generals have yeah. a harder time than I did <laughs> doing that uh, because they're used to different kinds of. But I, I found it relatively easy uh, to change. I miss, the thing I miss most of all was being able to sit down with four or five analysts and talk about a substantive problem. Talk about what are you going to do in the Middle East? What are you going to do if the, if the, if the uh, Iranians do this, mm -hmm. and what are they doing now? Now that, that was to me was exciting. And it was interesting because people were saying, uh, some kids came up and said, well, were you ever a spy? And I said, well, you know, the answer is I really never was a spy in the sense I was, I didn't go out and try to recruit an, a person. Uh, but I, what I did is take the information they had, tried to make sense out of it, and tried to present it in a way that would be useful to the customer. And, and it's as simple and as complex as that. And, uh, you know, that was just great fun. And, like to, and I do miss yeah. that. We like to say that, and this might be oversimplifying it, but I think it makes a lot of sense, is that the collections people, right? So the operations people and the technical collection people, they gather data and information. Yeah. It's the analysts that make it intelligence to where it's actually can be understood and you can make action based it's on It's the difference it. between information and intelligence. Yeah. I think it, yeah. that's a good point. Information is one thing, it's very useful, uh, but intelligence is information that's been thought through, processed, and trying to, and prioritized, if you will. You answer the so what question, right? What does yeah. it mean? I think that's important. Yeah. Policymakers usually can't figure that out on their own, so it's important. Well, it's hard enough if, you're, if that's your job to right. do it, but. You can't expect a policymaker to really understand the complexities of that. I always, you, you know, I was always fascinated by intelligence in part because people said, well, you can give away some intelligence, it won't hurt. You can give this away, you can, and, and we're not doing a very good job. In my view, we, we released satellite photography far too early than we should have, because people, because who, who are, who's most impressed by the fact that we have satellite photography? It's your enemies who say, oh, you mean you can do this? You mean you take that information and you turn that photograph into detailed knowledge about a submarine or 
aircraft carrier, and you put that with other information, and pretty soon you know the whole story. Right. And and uh, it, I mean, that's the the problem of releasing information. Tidbits of information make up intelligence. It's not usually some dramatic thing. It's a little bit here, a little bit there, scattered around, brought together and put together sensibly. That's what makes intelligence. There's a cognitive bias that analysts have to avoid, and that's mirror imaging, which is assuming that someone else is going to react the same way we are. And the reason I'm bringing that up is there's several stories in here that I loved because you took a very different perspective than your own in telling the story. A lot of these you can tell there's a little bit of Dick Kerr behind it, right? There, there's, there's a, you took your background and tweaked it a little bit. But there's a story called The Bomber, which is very mm. much from a different perspective. I'm not going to give it away. And then you wrote one of the seduction versions, but then you allowed two of your your, your yeah, book group was, colleagues to write it from a different perspective altogether. That was great I love seeing that. That idea. was great fun. Uh, the seduction was kind of an interesting story from my point of view. I mean, you, you, have, to, you have to read it because it's, it's not really a seduction. It's, it's something less than that. Well, I think we can tell the concept is that you wrote a chapter from the male perspective of a, a particular right. engagement. And then two of your two women women wrote it from the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. it was and fun. It was wonderful to kind of see that play out in those chapters. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing that. We should have. I tried to do it other times, but they weren't. It, it takes a lot of energy to do these things, you know, and you have to kind of be in the mood to right. do it. You, so we tried a couple others that didn't work. We tried writing a novel with everybody contributing a chapter. That didn't work either. I thought that'd be kind of fun, but you know, my ideas sometimes get a hold of, get ahead of my my, comp my competence. So, <laughs> well, let me wrap up, and then we'll we'll jump to the uh, to the audience if they have any questions. About there's a section in this about surprise, and surprise is something that you spent your entire career trying to avoid. I mean, the, you know, the CIA is the opposite; they don't want surprise. But at the same time, a lot of it involves writing with a sleight of hand, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. where you're you're leading the reader down a certain direction. Look over here, look over here, and there's an ending that kind of comes out of nowhere and takes them in a different direction. Was, was that on purpose? Was that how you kind of set out to write these particular chapters, where you kind well, of dangled a little bit of bait in one direction and get them to bite? No, some of it is, um, I like contrary views. I, I always, in fact, when I was in the agency, when I was in charge, uh, when, I, when I was in charge for a short period of time, I decided that I, what I wanted to do was provide the president and the national security advisors with a, with a book that would fundamentally say, here's how the Russians are seeing what we do. And here's how they interpret those actions. And, I, and the analysts didn't want to do it. They thought it was a stupid idea and uh, it was not going to work. And, and I was very persistent. I said, we, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a, a, a several items for them that say, here today is what the, if you were a Russian, here's what you'd be say the, see the US doing worldwide. And actually, it's quite scary. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the Russians, and you're looking at the United States who have all these military forces, all this activity, all these things going on, all the things you see in the press, all our initiatives. 
If you're a Russian, you'd say, oh, my God, these Americans are getting ready to do something right. to us. Well, you see that in 1982 with the war scare. With yeah, that's right, with exactly. Abel Archer and Rian. Well, that's and all one that. of the things that caused me to, to, to do that. No one liked it, including the customers and the analysts. Though I was the only, <laughs> person, I was the only person that liked the idea. And so, you know, it's one of those things you can only carry a bad idea or an unpopular idea so far. So I went on to other things. But I like kind of contrary views. I like people that will argue the other side. Um, I like to hear some of these stories are, are kind of bizarre because of that, I realize. Um, they're not that bizarre, but no. they're, they're, they're a little weird. Yeah, I think, I think Bob Gates overstates the bizarreness. I think they're, they're, they're a lot more straightforward than that, I think. <laughs> well, let me open it up to the audience if anyone has any questions um, for the former acting director, deputy director, and DDI uh, of CIA, or the author of The Dark Side of Paradise, it's all the same person. Uh, please just raise your hand and then ask away. This is your chance. Yes, ma'am. No, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think the answer is that you do that in the context of your own experiences and of history and of knowledge about what has happened before. That's part of the problem. Uh, you can be led down the wrong path by that, by your experience, by history, and by you, what you think makes sense. Because sometimes people don't do things that don't make sense. And that means you have to somehow think about it at times and say, well, maybe, maybe there's another alternative. And I think that's where alternative outcomes help you, where you say, this is the thing I think is really, this is what's happening. I put these pieces of the puzzle together, and it looks like clouds. But maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe it looks like something else if you were to reassemble them in another way. And maybe you should, you should look at that particular. So it's a matter of kind of getting, getting out of your, your set patterns and trying to do things that are creative. Um, you're not just using information you have. The key to good intelligence is also to know what you don't know. What am I missing? If, if I had that, would it change my view? What are the key things that I would like to have and would they really make a difference? And should I try to get them? Or are they that important? So there's a lot of kind of complex questions involved. And you're right, it, it is a puzzle. And usually, you don't have the, all the pieces together. Usually, you have a kind of a vague outline. It looks like an Easter basket, but it's really not. You know? so, well, in some <laughs> cases, you don't even know how many pieces you're missing. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's, it can be very difficult. Anybody, you know, the, if you had all the information, it's a piece of cake. Anybody can do analysis if you know everything there is to know about a problem. But you never do. 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be a problem. I mean, by definition, you don't have all the information. Wasn't one of the conclusions that you reached as part of the Iraq study in 2002 that too much emphasis had been placed on what we learned back oh, in 91? Absolutely. absolutely. That's an interesting concept to what you just said, yeah. where a lot of the conclusions that were made about Iraqi WMD were based on 10-year-old information about what we thought we knew about Iraq from Desert Storm. Yeah, four of us, four were asked, I was asked, and I got three other senior analysts to do a study of all of the information given to policymakers prior to the war with the U.S. conducted with Iraq. And the answer was, unfortunately, it took, the bureaucracy was slow in responding, or we would have done it earlier, but we, we started only a, a month or so, maybe two months before the war actually broke out. But we still stopped right at the beginning of the war and, and used that as the break point, went back about a year and a half and looked at all the intelligence. And, and I think, and you were, you're absolutely right, what, the, what, the key, what we found was the key problem is we were living off old information and we assumed that that information was still valid and we weren't questioning it. We, didn't, we made assumptions about that information that were not right. And as a result, we build a story. And then when we got a new piece of information, we fit that new piece of information into our pre-existing story. So we took new information and put it in. Like aluminum tubes became yeah, yeah, it, centrifuges. It became, and it was, it's easy to do because it's confirmatory intelligence. says, aha, that proves that I'm right. So uh, analysts can be easily uh, misled by that. It's not that they were bad analysts. Actually, they were quite, the people working this problem were quite good. But they didn't have fresh information and they carried the old information too far along with them and they didn't go back. And the key thing was no one went back. And this is, I blame the senior leadership. I blame the director and the deputy director. And we said this in our report. You guys were wrong. You, what you, you should have been making, asking hard questions about have you gone back and gone through this information from the beginning to see if it's, if it's accurate and if it's changed and if the new information is really refreshing uh, old information or bringing new ideas. And they didn't, you know. And that's part of the key problem of the postmortem. A lot of people were very unhappy with it, I might add. Well, it's like, Everybody was unhappy with it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, you have the key piece of human intelligence curveball, which told us exactly what we wanted to hear. And so no one really questioned, I mean, some did, but very few people questioned legitimacy. Well, they questioned this. it. But they never were able to talk to the, the, the originators. Right. So it was, it was fabricated information. That's one of the problems in today's world. If you're a smart person out there, you say, what is the intelligence community looking for? I'll give it to them. I'll make it up and give it to them. And if, I have, if I'm good, I can make it up from scratch. If I'm a scientist, I can, I can do a really good job. And the guy who, who made up the information on the biological weapons in, in Iraq was very good. And, and they essentially built a story up using information that was very credible and ticked Techniques were very credible. It was all fabricated. And, and uh, no one, that, that was a tough problem to deal with because it was good enough and people suspected, were worried because it was too good. 
They thought it's, it's, too good to be, it's too good to be true. And they were right. It was too good to be true. But we, we incorporated it into our, into our analysis because it fit well. Any other questions anyone may have? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, all those words that go around writing, like uh, in my best judgment or I believe, we, be we, we used to hate these words. Believe, you know, my boss, in fact, the fellow I mentioned, Bruce Clark, would say, if I ever see you use believe, we're not in the believe intelligence. That, that's for God. <laughs> yeah, but that's not intelligence. You don't believe things. You know them. You, you, you have some evidence to support it. And there's a lot of weasel words that go around those that people use. And, and there's, even a, there's even a rather definitive uh, glossary that was developed to say, when you say a few, how does that mean? How many does that mean? How, how many does several mean? How many does many mean? How many does a lot mean? You know? And when you use those words, you use them with precision. Few means two to three, I think. Three. Uh, you know. Several means up to kind of five to seven kind of thing, you know. But if you misuse those words, it's very easy to miss to lead somebody. And you still have English. You have words. You have to end up using words, and you have to say, "This is unlikely," or "This is this is almost a certainty." You know, we very seldom do that. Well, I think the important part of his question that you mentioned even before. And he actually, it was the answer to, to the young lady over there was the idea that you're never 100% certain. How do you convey that concept to a policymaker that you're not 100% certain? I think of the Bin Laden raid, where you had a room full of people giving different, different analytical products, basically, to the president, and he ended up going, oh, it's 50-50. You know, how, how do you get the point across that we think instead of using the word we believe or we have high probability or whatever else you want to use, what do you think is the best way to get that point across? I think laying out the evidence, what you end up having to do is lay out the evidence you have systematically. Lay out what you don't have that would change, that could affect that judgment. And then come to the best judgment you can. Uh, I mean, you need, if you, but you do need to lay out both sides of it. I think too often intelligence officers don't want to talk about what they don't know. Uh, I mean, that's not their, that's, you know, that's not my job to talk about what I don't know. My job is to talk about what I do know. And so I think quite often they are unwilling to kind of say, you know, we really don't know what we're talking about. We just don't have enough information to make a, a, a good judgment about this issue. And there are a lot of problems where you don't have enough information to make a, a sound judgment that, that will support action. It may support a discussion, but it won't support action. You know, that's, so I think you have to differentiate as to what, how it's going to be used, for one thing. If you're going to use information to, to do something where you're really committing the United States to a major, you better damn well be sure that you, 
Now, I've, I have to admit, I've done things that sound, I have to think my way back through that because I remember going down in the middle of the night and looking at photography of air, low, of aircraft flying over the, camp, the Russian camps in Cuba and to see if the Soviets were taking out their armored personnel, the forces that comprise their ground forces. And another fellow and I went down to the National Photographic Interpretation Center and spent all night looking at the photography. And, and we ended up saying we thought that they were, they were leaving. And, and I remember my boss asked me, he said, what do you mean you think they're leaving? I mean, what's the evidence? And he said, well, the evidence is there's a lot of strange things going on that some of the bed rolls in the, bu in the bunks are rolled up and you don't see foot lockers there. I mean, there, you know, it was, it was a very tenuous, uh, but, but the other side of it was they wanted an answer. They wanted an answer to that question. Are they leaving or not? And so we came back and said, yes, they're leaving. And they said, well, are you certain? He said, we said, well, we're, we're pretty certain. <laughs> we're not absolutely certain, but we're pretty certain. So, you know. Well, that's one of the benefits of, of an analyst that's actually been living that particular subject matter or anything else is that little nuances, little minor changes that no one else would ever figure out. I mean, I. I, I very much respect, maybe more than just about anybody else, the photo interpreters. Yeah. Because just a shadow in a different place or just something that, that I would never notice for my life, they go, oh, this is this, this means X, Y, Z. No, I spent an awful conclusion. lot of my time in my early career looking over the shoulder and looking through stereoscopes at photography, trying to see what it was they were saying with that. And, and actually, they were very good at a lot of things because they followed, consistently, they followed activity and program. So they had a sense of how things worked that other people did not. For instance, they, they knew how an SA-2 site was set. They know set up. They knew that certain things came first and then another set of things and then another set of things. And they could build it in their mind as to, uh, as to what it should look like. And, and uh, you know, that it's just based on experience, but it's also based on a lot of detailed information. So. Anybody, any, go ahead. No, any final questions? Oh, there's multiple ones, so I'll go right here, yeah. Um, I just wanted to switch directions a little bit. Um, I wanted to know, what was your culture like at CIA when you first started versus when you left? And I mean fun things, like when did you get a subway or whatever? Yes. Uh, <laughs> at Starbucks, whatever. Well, there was a... And, 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 and also, um, because I know you started in the era of OSS, I have to ask, did you know Julia Child? Did I? No. Julia Child. Did you know Julia No. <laughs> I know her only from television. <laughs> I'm not that old. Let's see. No. I'm old, but not that quite that old. <laughs> uh, the answer to your question is fairly complex, too. When I came in, all the old hands were in the senior jobs. And, and it was a it was a organization that was heavily dominated by the Ivy League uh, and uh, uh, by ex World War II people out of OSS, which were the Ivy League, and referred there by their teachers in Brown and Princeton and Yale and Harvard and 
So it was very, it was a very different kind of, it was quite different than my background, which was as a, a real peasant. Uh, and, uh, and they, so, but it was a great, it was a great learning experience because these were very smart people who had a lot of experience and a lot of the World War II people were particularly impressive. They had actually done real things, you know, in real places. And so, so they were pretty impressive. At the same time, you know, I looked at them as kind of the, the old elephants, you know, that, you know, and I was going to, and, and I was a, a newcomer to that. And, and so I, uh, I paid attention to them, but I wasn't afraid of them particularly. I, I, I was careful with them because some of them were pretty impressive people. And, and they knew more than I did, a lot more about the world and about things. And so I tried to learn as much from them as I could. And some things I never did pick up. Um, and I was a lot clumsier than they were socially. And uh, so that sometimes was a little embarrassing. But I'm hard to embarrass. <laughs> was, the mentality <laughs> still, was the mentality still this really hard line between the operations side and the analysis very side? Much, yeah, very where, much. I mean, there's the old urban legend, maybe even truth, where almost like the jets and the sharks in the cafeteria at CIA, like West Side Story, were just kind of staring down each other and no, on the I, other side of the building. Actually, most of the operations people probably didn't go to the cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, there was a social, it was a social group. A lot of them went downtown to Georgetown and drank martinis at noon, some of the old timers. Uh, my, the idea that I was, you know, as a young analyst, going to go down and drink martinis at <laughs> noon, I'd ne never been able to, one, drink martinis, two, I couldn't function if I came back, and three, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so the whole idea was crazy. And besides, I didn't want to. I mean, it wasn't of interest to me. But I got to know a lot of them, and they were very, some very sophisticated people and some very good people. Uh, some I got to know very well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I won't by any means disparage their role and contribution, but they, it was a different class structure. And it was a class structure, there's no question. And when I came in, just about 19, somewhere around 1960 or slightly before, someone in the agency decided that we're going to start recruiting nationwide. So they sent recruiters to Oregon, to Washington, California, Idaho, the Midwest, and they brought in all these unwashed people. <laughs> and, you know, it was a different, it was a different, it changed the culture. And so 10 years later, those people, like me, were in more senior positions. They were being branch, they were branch chiefs, and they were people making decisions. So the culture, no question, changed. And by the, the 80s, certainly, uh, it had changed significantly, and, and the old guard had largely gone. It didn't mean you still didn't get people from Princeton, Harvard, and Brown, and Yale, but the numbers relative where others came from were significantly changed. Well, I think you can even see that with the director. I mean, yes, Bill Casey was an OSS guy, but he certainly wasn't the three-piece suit-wearing, pipe-smoking, Alan Dulles type. He was more of the kind of working-class person from the, you know, that really didn't fit in all that well with the Donovan yeah, he, disciples. You no, know, he was a little different, yeah. no question. He was, 
he was a person, he was his own person. And, and that was true of, the directors were an odd group of people, but you know, because they're appointed for political reasons, not for substantive reasons for the most part. I mean, they're not, they're, very few directors were appointed because they were intelligence officers or, or uh, people that had large experience in foreign policy necessarily. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more sharing than, there's a lot of jealousy across the org, uh, organization. Uh, there always has been. CIA didn't think much of DIA, thought it was a mediocre organization. Now I'll tell you a story about DIA. At one point in time, my boss, maybe I should be careful about this story. <laughs> my, my boss told me that I had to send, I was the DDI, I guess, at that. I can't remember what I was at that time. He said, I had to send some of my best analysts to DIA because they were going to send some of their best analysts to us. And my view was, like hell. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're welcome to send their best analysts to us, but I wasn't going to send our best analysts to them uh, because I wasn't going to suffer. That. I didn't, I mean, it just was too much of a loss. You don't have that many really good analysts. So you don't send off people that are, are your main support people. Um, so there was, there always was a little, certainly between the military, DIA, between the military and CIA, there always was this kind of pushing and shoving uh, about who was in charge uh, about particular things. And ultimately, the Defense Department won out that, won on that battle. They, they essentially took away from CIA all of the things that made, in my judgment, you'll see my biases, that made CIA particularly important. The National Photographic Interpretation Center, Program B, which is the group that developed all the key satellites and for both photographic satellites and SIGINT satellites, put that into the NRO. Uh, I mean, they, they, they stripped a lot of things out of the CIA because they were heavily supportive of the Defense Department. And, and it really made, it made a difference for CIA. It became less of an organization. And th this all happened kind of after I left, thank God, or I, I would have had a real fit over it. But yeah, my sense of humor would not have, would not have uh, stayed with me on that. Because they kind of stripped a lot of the things that made CIA a power in the structure of government. And you know, if you're not, if, you can, if you're not a player in government at the top, at every level, then you're kind of not a player. I mean, that's the way life is. Do you think and, might have contributed to what happened to 9-11? I don't know. I, we actually had better relations, say, with the FBI than people realized. Uh, but nearly all of them were because we, we worked at some, some things very well, but we didn't really, the FBI, I don't know if there are anybody from the FBI here. The FBI is a different group of cats than CIA. 
the FBI investigates and puts people in jail. CIA does not investigate. It does analysis. And quite honestly, if it's a question of putting them in jail or letting them go free and figuring out who they're working with and where they're going and what they're going to do next, our preference would be to leave them alone, not put them in jail, let them go out and, and keep tabs of them. And that's not what the, the that's not what attorney general people do. They want to they want to put them in jail. And quite often we would argue with them saying, no, let's just make sure, let's let's kind of let this go and let them see, let's find out who the people behind it are. That would be our principal judgment in many cases. Let's not wrap them up and put them in jail. I mean, fundamentally, collections officers are going to other countries to break the law. Like, not well, American laws, but the law in the country that they're going to recruit absolutely. people. Absolutely. I mean, people don't understand yeah. that. And I tell them, and they, you know, I kind of, eyes kind of cloud over when I say, you know, we're in the business of breaking the law. We're in the yeah. business of stealing and causing people to turn into traitors against their own country. Well, that sounds fairly serious. <laughs> uh, and that's, but that's what intelligence does. <clears throat> and uh, we've had some directors who didn't like that. We had some directors who thought that that sounded like an immoral act. It's hard to have a director who kind of doesn't seem, thinks that what you do as your fundamental job is, is not moral. But well, let me, let me wrap this up so that there's time if you want to get some books signed. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. The book, if you don't know, is The Dark Side of Paradise. And it, it's, it's a I wonderfully quick read. You don't have to read it quick because they're all vignettes and you can kind of just knock one or two out every day and have it by your bedside. Uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.